James Bond. <laughs> he has served as pastor, as president of uh, Point Loma Nazarene University, as a missionary, and in 1997 was elected to the highest office in the church as general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene. He literally serves the world, but he lives here in Colorado Springs. And so we're indeed delighted that he can be here with us tonight and look forward to the message because he always speaks to our heart. Welcome to Nazarene Bible College, Dr. Bob. Well, I reminded of the psalmist's words, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, let us magnify the Lord together. Good evening. Can you hear me? Wow. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here tonight. Uh, thank you for the invitation to come again. Thank you for your invitation, Dr. Sanders, but you left one really vitally important matter out there. I was a professor and chaplain at Nazarene Bible College for about three years, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm just coming home tonight. Is that all right? I'm very comfortable in this setting, though this building was not here when I was here years ago. But uh, I believe in Nazarene Bible College. I believe in its very unique mission. I believe in the president, in the administration, the faculty, the staff around this place. And so I'm delighted to spend a few minutes with you here this evening. I, uh, I'm nearing the end of my term of formal service in the Church of the Nazarene. In fact, this summer I will officially retire, not because I want to, but age has caught up with me. And you cannot be elected to this job after your 68th birthday, and I had that a little while ago now, so uh, I know that uh, my job comes to an end in just uh, about four months now. Hey, that's all right. That's quite all right, because I believe I'm entering the best days I'll ever live for Jesus. My eyes are on the future, not on the past. But I, I resonate a lot with the, uh, the Apostle Paul at this time in my life, and so I find uh, a great deal of comfort in 2 Timothy. And it's in uh, 2 Timothy where Paul gives that uh, marvelous little statement in chapter 4, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. So I'm sort of looking back as well, and what I want to do tonight is just uh, muse with you for a few moments, look back, reflect, and I suppose if I were to have a title of what I'm going to do tonight, I simply would call it, uh, if I could do it all over again, how I might do it differently, or what I would do, what I would focus upon if I could do it all over again. Or I suppose to put it in, in a little different context, I would simply say, I want to give some counsel to those of you who are getting ready to go out into the ministry. Um, let me ask, how many of you are preparing now and soon will be in pastoral ministry as senior pastors? Let me see. Well, that would be many of you. How many of you are in some kind of a associate pastor work, youth pastor or something of that nature? That would take in many of you. What are the rest of you going to do? <laughs> huh? Tell me. Well, okay, you're all involved in, uh, in senior pastors or associate pastors of some kind. 
maybe teaching. I'm sure some of you probably don't know at this point exactly what you're going to do. But I, I think what I have to say tonight is relevance to all of us. Let me read in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, these rather familiar words from the pen of the incomparable Apostle Paul. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Well, I just want to focus maybe on that last phrase, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And though I may be focusing more on senior pastor, I think it, what I have to say has relevance to all of us tonight. If I could do it all over again, first of all, I would pray more. That sounds kind of elementary, doesn't it? Oh, it's not as though I never prayed. It's not as though God didn't teach me early in my life the importance of prayer. It's not as though God didn't say to me, the way that you demonstrate your need of me is to fall on your face before me and cry out for mercy and grace and help. I heard that. I knew that. But let me tell you, folks, life in the ministry has a way of just forcing you to give yourself to the urgent to the neglect of the important. So if you're going to be the person God wants you to be in pastoral ministry, you have to prioritize your life and live with those priorities. I guess I'm talking about priorities in a broad sense here because all of these that I'm talking about are things that I think I would prioritize if in fact I could do it all over again. I would pray more, and I could spend a lot of time talking about all of these, but there's some more important than others. Prayer is God's way of our demonstrating our total reliance upon Him. And I think in the church today we're trying to do too much with our own human resources and ingenuities. Pastors chasing all over the country to, to this seminar, to this workshop, to this church, to, to this pastor, thinking maybe they can find some magic formula that will help them grow the church. It just does not happen that way. I think I'm convinced that God can use any plan if that plan has worked. The secret's not in the plan. The secret is in the anointing of God upon the minister so that God can, in fact, make himself known. So first of all, I would just pray more. Secondly, if I could do it all over again, I would love more. Did you know that love always wins? Did you know that that, that the way of love is the Jesus way? I wish I could tell you as you get ready to take your assignment, wherever that might be, that you will never encounter any difficulties or problems. 
that you will never be misunderstood by anyone in the church, that you will never encounter carnality. But my friends, you might as well brace yourself. That's the real world you're going into. It's going to be out there. I'm sure your professors are telling you that. And the fact is, you've been involved in the church yourself. You know it's true. I've been absolutely blown away since I've been in this job at how many times local churches get in contact with me to try to resolve conflicts between members within the church. I'm always glad to report to them that the, the manual gives general superintendents no authority in a local church, and I refer them to the district superintendent. <laughs> I pastored a church where I, I did in fact run into conflict with people who didn't like my philosophy of ministry, I don't think they agreed with my theology. So there were problems. These were leaders in the church. And actually it came to the place where I finally decided these people will not let me be their pastor, but there's one thing they cannot prevent me from being, and that is love. They cannot prevent me from loving them. I don't care how they treat me, what they say about me, they cannot prevent me from loving them. And I wish I could tell you that uh, the end result immediately was great, but it was not. Uh, they eventually left the church. But over time, those people have been restored to me in beautiful fellowship. Love always wins. It may not look like it's going to win at the moment, but my friends, love always wins. So make up your mind as a pastor early on, you're going to love with all the love that you're capable of through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I think if I were to do it again, I would emphasize divine healing a lot more. I've been drawn lately to that little uh, phrase there in the first verse of chapter 1 of the Acts of the Apostles where Luke says, I'm writing this, O Theophilus, uh, to remind you of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And uh, you know that Jesus himself said his ministry essentially was preaching, teaching, and healing. He sent his disciples out to do what? Go preach, teach, and heal. The New Testament church, if you've studied carefully, you'll find that was their mission to preach, teach, and heal. And so if we are to continue all that Jesus began to do, then it seems to me in the year of our Lord 2005, we also will be involved in healing. I, I charge you tonight to give serious thought to this. If in fact your ministry focuses only on preaching and teaching and you neglect healing, you're not doing all that Jesus commanded us to do. I, I'm so intrigued by this, I honestly feel that in my, my retirement years coming that that's going to be a major focus of my ministry. I feel convicted in my heart at this very point. I, I honestly have never thought through a theology of healing. Have you? There are not very many good books on healing and the theology of healing. The best one I've found is by Frank Stanger Bateman, who was president of Asbury Seminary for many years. It's a marvelous little, little paperback called The Healing Community. And if you're interested at all in, in doing all that Jesus began to do and to teach, that is, teaching and preaching and healing, this is a wonderful little reference book I think could help you develop your own philosophy of healing. 
Number four. Is this little clock, is it accurate here on the desk? It must be at least five or ten minutes fast. No, it's slow. <laughs> and I know you've got classes to go too quickly. Thirdly, or is it fourthly, if I could do it all over again, I would focus on people. That sounds kind of simple, doesn't it? You say that's what we're all about. Well, <clears throat> if I could do it all over again, I think I would just call a meeting of all the people of my church and say, let's sit down and we're going to just evaluate every program we have in the life of this church and see if that program is focusing on addressing the needs of people. I think I'm convinced that there's a lot of busyness in the church going on that just occupying the time of people. And we've done it forever this way, so we just keep, keep doing it this way. I think it is very important for you as pastor, as leader, to just sit down with your people and say, let's look seriously at what we've been doing and then take the strong hand in attempting to focus every dollar, every minute, every talent, every effort on people and their needs. That's what the church is all about. I'm not a great fan of Robert Schuller, though I tell you, you cannot fault what he's done over the years. When I'm home and have, have opportunity to do so, I usually flip on the channel at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning before I come to church. Because I, among other things, love the great music they have on that, in that church. But you think that's a great church with a, you know, a glass crystal cathedral there, and the fact is that church is involved in 37 different ministries to their community right around that church, addressing addictions of people and all kinds of divorce issues and things of that nature, trying to find the need and address that need. That's the way to get into the hearts and lives of men and women, addressing human need. And that opens the door then to tell the wonderful story of Jesus. I remember years ago I was pastoring in Casper, Wyoming, and there was a lady who came to church. Just periodically she'd show up, 30-ish, I suppose, in age, unkept, unmarried, came to church only occasionally, like a shadow just flitting in and out. One cold Saturday evening at our Saturday evening prayer time, we were around the altar, 12 or 15 of us, and she came in, took her coat off, joined with us in prayer. And when we finished the prayer and started to leave, we all went to the back door, walked out, got into our cars, fired the heaters up, and started away. I was the last one to leave the church, and I, as I started by, there was a couple in a car just in front of me, maybe a block ahead of me, and they drove right past the lady who was walking into that cold Wyoming wind with her little old muffler up around her, her neck trying to keep warm, and frankly, I could not pass her by. I stopped, picked her up, said, let me give you a ride, had enough sense to drive the parsonage and say to my wife, I want you to drive Mary home, which she did. I'd hardly gotten home, the phone rang, and the lady called me, lady called me on the phone, who was in the car just in front of us. She said, Pastor, my husband and I saw you stop and pick up Mary. And you have to be really careful, young pastor. Got to be really careful about picking a woman like that up on the streets at night, you know, and... Uh, my first thought was, why didn't you and your husband pick her up? I have to tell you that I'm concerned when 
when the church focuses more on propriety than it does people. Well, that lady came occasionally. We never, she never was a member, never got deeply involved, but she knew I cared about her. And she would come and we'd talk and counsel, read the Word and pray together. When I left that church, went to College Church in Nampa, she uh, came one day to my door of the office and said, I have something for you. It was, a, it was a box of dirty, dusty old books. She said, I want you to have these. Well, I tried to be a gracious recipient of her gift and thanked her and threw them in with the rest of my books and took them to Nampa, Idaho. And some months later, was going through this box and I... I, I ran across a book that looked a little interesting. I opened it up, and inside was a little, maybe three by five piece of paper that looked like it had been crumpled up, thrown in the trash, then retrieved and put in the book so as to preserve it. And I could barely make it out, but this is what it said. I got tired of being lonely. That's why I left the church. No husband, no home life, no nice companionship, just people politely nodding, but no one sharing my sorrows and woes, no one to share my joys. I stood in my office, the tears flowed, and I remember thinking to myself about the phone call that I received that night in my parsonage where the lady says, Mary is nothing more than a church tramp. She just kind of goes to this church and that church. I read that note and I said, no, she's not a church tramp. She's just a real, live, flesh and blood, God-created person who, if she had a sin at all, it was that she has the same needs and drives and desires that are common to all of us. All she needed was love and acceptance and companionship. She needed to know that someone cared about her. And I remember standing in my office that day with that note in my hand thinking, there are no such things as church tramps and homosexuals and drunkards and harlots and addicts and terrorists. Beneath all of that, they're just people. And people are the business of the church. So my friends, I encourage you to think seriously about people and how you can address the needs of people and when you begin to address the needs of people, there's no telling what God will do with you and your church. Focus on people. Well, I've got to hurry here. <laughs> Number five, I would personally lead at least one person to Jesus Christ, disciple them, and bring them into the membership of the Church of the Nazarene within, within the next year, the first year I'm there. American Society of Church Growth in a recent study said one half of the churches in America all the churches right across the board, one half did not add one new member by conversion or profession of faith to their church last year. Well, we do better than that. Only one-third of the churches of the Nazarene here in the United States go a full year without adding even one by profession of faith. Not the same ones every year, obviously but not a one. When I hear pastors giving that report at district assembly, I say to myself, please, are you telling me 
that by the grace of God, the pastor himself or herself couldn't lead at least one person to Jesus in a 365-day period? Much less getting the troops, if you will, aroused and concerned about bringing at least one to Jesus Christ? Oh, I hope you bring many to Jesus Christ. But set the rudder of your will and say, by the grace of God, I will never go to district assembly without at least one new member by profession of faith. Because as we focus on people, we're focusing on eternal souls. Refuse to accept the, the, uh, the, the, the status quo. That, that is unacceptable in the kingdom. I don't know how, care how many years the church has gone without bringing people to Jesus. Don't let it happen, my friends. Give yourself to bringing those to Jesus Christ. Number six, I would plant churches. Sure would. I'd be a part of planting churches. Did you know the greatest form of evangelism in the history of the Christian church is starting new churches? I mean, that's pretty well documented. In a local church, 10 years of age or older, it takes 85 people to bring one new person to Jesus Christ in a given year. In a church three years or younger, it takes only three people to do that. That's research data. Churches seven, four to seven years old take seven people to do that. Priorities of the Board of General Superintendents, our missional priorities are very simple. We must do compassionate evangelism. We must make Christ-like disciples. And we must start new churches. And it's happening all around the world. My assignment now is Africa. I just came back in January, my final international trip. I ordained uh, early January, probably 15 or 18, in our great central church in Maputo, Mozambique. I ordained one man with one leg. When I said to him, you don't have to kneel here at the altar, you can, you can stand or you can sit in the chair, he said, I will kneel at the altar. He knelt at the altar. One of the most humbling things I do in this job is lay my hands on the heads of men and women and ordain them into the Christian ministry. And you can understand what a humbling moment that was to ordain this man. I didn't know his story at the time. I just, as a matter of fact, heard the story today about this guy. And I don't have time to go into all the story, but when he graduated from seminary, and that was a marvelous, it's Bible school like this. When we say seminary, you know what I'm talking about in, in other countries. He left the Bible college and he's been gone for two years now. And in that two years, he has a church running 300. Want to hear the rest of the story? Out of his church, they've started eight other churches, all of them averaging between 50 and 100. And I can tell you stories again and again and again like that in Africa. I believe that a holiness movement is in the early stages in Africa. I believe that with all of my heart. And I've seen it. I could talk a long time about that. But there's one more thing I mentioned quickly, and I see it's about nine minutes after eight o'clock. I would do everything humanly possible through the grace of God to bring my people into the life, into the experience and the life of Christian holiness. Huh. Oh, I would. I believe in the Church of the Nazarene. There are others from other denominations here, and I respect all denominations. 
But I believe in the Church of the Nazarene. I believe in her understanding of the Christian doctrines and, and particularly Christian holiness. Why do I believe in holiness? I believe it's biblical from Genesis to Revelation. Why do I believe in holiness? Because the greatest saints of the church have testified, many of them at least, testified that they came into a second definite crisis experience in their life that lifted them to a new level of victorious Christian living and, and enabled them to be more effective and fruitful in their service to God and His kingdom. Dr. Greathouse has a little paperback call from the Apostles to Wesley. Read that or if you want a more detailed book. We have a great series entitled The Great Holiness... Uh, I'm not sure that I remember the exact title. I don't think it wrote, I even wrote it down. But Great Holiness Classics, I think there are about six volumes in that. Paul Bassett from the seminary wrote the first volume, which is entitled From uh, New Holiness Teaching, New Testament Times to Wesley. And those will document what I'm talking about, the great saints of the church. I don't want to turn my back on the great saints of the church who testify experientially about having come into this experience. I, I believe in the doctrine because I believe it addresses the deepest need of the human heart. I don't want to be part of any denomination that, that says, well, the gospel is only about forgiveness. Dallas Willard has written some very wonderful and helpful books. Uh, in one of his books, he takes issue with a little sign that says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Because that little sign says that forgiveness is what Christianity is all about that I can come into a life in Christ and experience forgiveness, but it makes no difference in my life. I'm still the same person, just forgiven. He says we've adjusted Christianity today to what he called the gospel of sin management. Well, I don't believe in that. I believe that God, through Jesus Christ, can change the human heart. fact is, the Wesleyan holiness message is about transformation of heart and life. So I believe in with all of my heart because it's biblical. The great saints of the church have testified. It meets the deepest need of the human heart. And if I had time, I could take an hour tonight. No, that doesn't sound exactly right. If I had time, I'd take an hour. But if I had time, I could tell you within an hour about what God did in my own life as a 15-year-old boy. Because I believe God sanctified me wholly as a 15-year-old. A young guy who, who was yearning to be all that God wanted him to be, and I yielded control of my life to him. I believe he said, this young guy is dead serious about this, and I'm going to help him fulfill that. He cleansed my heart. He filled me with his spirit. And from that day to this, I can testify that my soul has been rooted and fixed in God. So... I would prioritize this message. I would do it in my preaching for two primary reasons. First of all, it brings harmony within the church. Too many churches are just at each other's throats, and I, I think it's nothing more than old carnality. And also because I think it equips the church for ministry. It is only in the power of God's Spirit, Jesus, the resurrected Lord through the Spirit living in us, only in God's Spirit can we accomplish God's purposes in this world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, I challenge you tonight, take this charge. Consider these issues as you go to take your charge wherever and whenever that may be. And may God go with you and anoint you and help you to do it 
to his glory and honor. And everybody said, amen. Now you're going back to class. Say amen again. Amen. amen. God bless you. Have a good evening.